All right, so this this we're gonna look at a couple uh, charts. This one we're gonna come to this in a few minutes, um, but I wanted to get it kind of get ahead of get ahead a little bit so you're not waiting for me to draw the first one. So. Uh, what I want to talk about to begin with is how oftentimes the gospel is something that's assumed. It's assumed. And what I mean by that is we, we tend to view it as something that someone needs to hear in the early phases, let's say, of their introduction to Christianity. And it functions more as like a door. And once you kind of walk through that door, you kind of leave the gospel behind you and you grow on into maturity. And you'll see that this chart kind of reflects that. And we're going to talk about that here in, in a few minutes. But one of the things I want us to understand today, that kind of the, the main point, the big idea is that the gospel is not just the door, but rather the, the pathway or, or the way in which we as Christians and the church are to orient ourselves in regards to how we think about God, how we think about how God is working in our lives and in the, in the world and in, in the church. And uh, if we were to talk about, like last week we talked about the gospel is truth and the gospel is story. And so the gospel is truth, and this is kind of what this is hinging on, is this idea that Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived, died the death that we deserved, and rose in victory and vindication over sin, death, and Satan to purchase for us forgiveness and redemption, and that when one places their faith in Jesus as the one who saves and redeems, that his righteousness, meaning his perfect obedience to God's law, his death, um, and fulfillment of our transgressions of the law, are now accredited, they're, they're, they're imputed to us. And so we're now made and declared functionally and objectively righteous before God's sight. Now, it's not a righteousness of our own, but it's one that's been given to us, and it's the righteousness of Christ, and it's a gift of grace received by faith. Um, and, and so in light of that, we're going to talk about how that fundamental truth, that foundational truth, is never something that we move beyond, but it's something that we grow in, in our understanding of defense, and there's a lot of implications for that. And so when we, when we say the gospel is not just the door, but it's the pathway, that's kind of what we're getting at, that this truth has... Uh, eternal ramifications for how we think about ourselves and our relationship with God. So, <clears throat> we don't want to assume the gospel. And the other thing we need to understand is that there's really three ways that we typically respond to this idea of God or the gospel or, or, or wanting what it means to have a relationship with God or to know Him and, and to walk with Him. Now, He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures um, and people would have Regardless of where that, like some people would say, I don't believe in God, others might, but we all typically respond in one of three ways. So the first one is religious self-reliance. Religious self-reliance. We would call this maybe moralism. I trust in my own ability to obey God and be accepted by him. Now, this may be phrased differently. I remember I had a conversation with a friend, and I was like, hey, one, let's say you meet God at the end of your life. I said, how do you know he's going to welcome you into his presence? And he's like, well, I'm not perfect, but I've lived a pretty good life, and God knows my heart, and therefore I, I think he'll, he'll judge me in accordance with kind of my heart, my, my conscience. You know, I was like, all right. So it's a, still a version of this. It's a, it's a form of self-reliance. I'm going to be not perfect, but good enough to pass the bar. Second way we might respond is irreligious rebellion. You might say this is relativism. I decide my own truth and meaning in this life apart from God. So there's no higher authority than you or me. I'm the one. I'm the captain of my ship. I'm the master of my destiny. I'm going to live the, my life how I want to live my life, and nobody's going to tell me otherwise. And if there is a God, well, I don't really care much about that because he doesn't seem to care much about me either. So I'm doing my own thing. So that's a pretty popular one. If you would have met me in my 20s, this would have been, this would have been me um, living, living a life of, uh, yeah, anarchy, maybe, would be a good way to describe my life back then. 
But anyway, so you got religious self-reliance, irreligious rebellion, and then the third would be gospel, and this is what we're going to be focusing in on this morning. And so a, a true or proper understanding of the gospel is essentially what the Christian life should look like and be shaped by. And this is, I am accepted by God, right? Perfectly in Jesus, therefore I can obey. Therefore I get to obey. Therefore I want to obey. Notice the, the, the ordering there. The acceptance comes prior to the obedience. So, <clears throat> when we typically talk about spiritual growth, one of the things, or one of the ways we typically frame it, and this is why this, this chart comes in helpful, is something along this line, right? So you've got the larger culture comprised of lost or irreligious people. They're living their life, and then they hear the gospel, and then they have this conversion, and then they begin to grow spiritually, and they join the church, and we would say, so you've got the, these irreligious and these religious people. Does this make sense? Have any of you ever been exposed to a, uh, a, a chart like this before? To, okay. So, but when we look at this, we're like, hey, this kind of makes sense. So here's a couple questions. What, what does this chart communicate, let's say visually, about the relationship between those on this side and this side? Okay, anyone can get there? Very good. Wow, that's really hard to write that way. <laughs> that kind of looks like anyone. <laughs> what are some other things? What about distance? I, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I don't want to be considered religious. You don't want to be considered religious? Uh, spiritually mature. Or not even mature, um, but from irre irreligious to religious, I don't. I don't think that's that's good. I know there are a lot of Christians, so-called Christians, who are very religious, <clears throat> and I. I don't want to be that. Okay. I feel that sentiment. So let me ask a more pointed question. What does this convey in terms of distance between the people who are over here on this side and the people who are over here on this side? It's a process that they've got to go through. So there's a process? That process on that side uh -huh. takes a little bit longer until they get to the conversion line. Okay. So there's a process. They gotta go through. What else? What else is the distance between those who would be on this side and this side? Separate. Separate. That's an A, right? I always want to put an E there. They're separated. What else? I think it's. Um hard, at least now, for um, for Christians to reach out to the lost, but I think it, it may have been easier 50 or 60 years ago, um, because church was kind of a... More accepted? Yeah, and... So would you say hard to relate is a good way? Yeah. Okay. Good. 
I think that's the <coughs> there's a big different there's a big distance in between those two things. Good. That sometimes the loss just you can plant the seed and, and hope that they get it. It's true. So kind of following that line, if 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 this is the way we think about spiritual growth. Um, now, if we're talking about how what we need to do as a church, um, what do we need for people over here, and what do we need for people over here? Say that again. If we're thinking about as a church, right, things that we're going to commit ourselves to doing, ministries, uh, initiatives, etc., and if we think of this as being the way that the 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 church is, let's say. Organized, not that's the wrong way of phrasing it. This is the way people grow spiritually. What do we need for people over here, and what do we need for people over here? Training and communication. So, training. Do you think, um, how about acceptance? Training of one's growth, meaning when you, when you get the so called mature Christian, he needs to come along beside. Of the immature. Good. Mm-hmm. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that here in a few minutes. I like I like that. Um, so let me, let me phrase it this way: Do you think people on this side and people on this side need the same thing, or do they need different programs? Do they need different focuses? Do they need different? Some of it. You said some of it. Some of both. Some of both. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. This is typically how we think of spiritual growth. And I, and I think <clears throat> while the, the idea of being religious um, has fallen on kind of hard times, generally speaking, that's how people frame it. Like if you were to talk to somebody and say, hey, you want to come to church? No, I'm not religious. People might say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> spiritual but not religious, right? Um, but one of the things you have to realize is that the Bible actually doesn't speak negatively of being religious in the sense of having a ordered, disciplined life of devotion and worship to God. James even says, true religion is to care for the widows and the orphans. And so James has a high view of being religious, but we've got to define that in certain ways. Right. And obviously, the, the hang-ups we would have would be religious. We typically frame it as being like legalistic, harsh, arrogant, you know, moralistic, etc., I think there's a lot of Christians that have messed up the religiousness of it. Yes. All right, so these, and you're going to, on the handout in a little bit, you're going to have a chart that looks like this. So this is, if you want to call it the traditional way of thinking about the, the way we grow spiritually. So now I'm going to, we're going to swap some things out here a little bit, okay? in advance for any spelling errors.
So, <coughs> here's the difference now. So you have the gospel being central, and this, uh, I know the prior to read, says justified by grace, sanctified by grace, which is communicating that process that we begin to walk. But notice the difference here. Now you have irreligious loss and religious loss. And both are being called to repentance and faith and trusting in Christ as the source of their justification and good standing with God. See how this looks a little bit different now? Because the only thing that I think that this way of thinking about spiritual growth, what it does is it centers the gospel, it centers things on Christ, and it recognizes that there are both religious and irreligious laws. There are two uh, equally wrong ways of responding to the call to, to trust in God. One is, I'm going to earn my way into God's presence, which we would say that's a religiously lost way of living one's life. But in your religious one is the way is typically that's the only way we think about what it means to be lost. The person who's living, let's say, in a life of abject or obvious rebellion. They reject authority, they're kind of living their life as they want to. And even the way things get messaged in the church, very often, that's how it's kind of framed. You have we here in the church, right? If you think of that old the other diagram, there's the church and the rest of culture. But if we're thinking about it in terms of the gospel, we realize: look, what separates you and I? from those who are not in the church. Christ. And fundamentally, outside of that, there is nothing different from them and us. We only think we're better. We only think we're more put together. We only think we're more moral. We only think we're... And we deceive ourselves when we think in those ways. And it fleshes out in the way we treat others. But if we understand that if not for the grace of God, there go I. Right? We, and we truly understand the gospel, then that changes the way that we think about those who are not a part of the church. It changes the way that we think about how we relate to them. And we're going to see in the coming weeks, for example, it even changes the way we begin to think about what, what uh, should the priorities be in the church and what is my role now as a Christian, as a part of the church in light of how God desires to see his church function and flourish and what purposes God has for and for us as members of the church. So in this one, in distinction as well, like I said, so the distance is now kind of removed. It conveys a sense of like we're not any different. But the main thing I want, I want us to see is that spiritual maturity isn't this kind of moving away from people, but it growing deeper and deeper into understanding of the, of the, of the cross. Summarize that by saying there's a lot of hypocrites that are Christians. There are, and I'm one of them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we all are, but I'm right? Saying, yeah. Okay. And I, I kind of just this is definition of hypocrite, kind of right. There are. It's actually um. In 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 my uh, my early years, let's say one of one of my biggest hangups with respect to the church was that most of what I encountered were hypocrites. Uh, for an example, and just a short story to give kind of context. So me and my friends, our life was an HBO special in high school. We were crazy. And I remember I'm hanging out with all my friends and we're partying. I was not anywhere near close to sober. None of us were. And there was an, a, there was an occurrence that happened and I got to, uh, and I, I would have described myself back then as not an atheist, but an anti-theist. I knew that there was a God and I hated him for it. And so somebody had said something, I laid into him, and I, had, and I had this guy who used to party with us come up to me. He's like, man, I'm so glad you said those things. He's like, I believe those things too. He's like, because I'm a Christian, and I started laughing in his face. 
I just, I like, I found it, I found it absolutely, I was like, you're, I, I laughed at him. I was like, we're not anything alike. I was like, you're, you're, and I, I think I told him, I said, you're a hypocrite. You're like, get away from me. But that, those were my experiences. And I, it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s when I finally met a gentleman who was leading a study who was the first person I met that I would say was an authentic, not saying he's perfect in that altogether, but like he was honest about his, his, his junk. Wasn't trying to hide it. Wasn't trying to pretend or perform. He was just who he was, and he, and, he, and he understood the grace given to him, and he extended that grace to me and to others, and, and that, was, that was for me the first domino that tipped. I was like, oh, okay, they're not all, and that was enough to kind of open me up to engage in conversations with him. Now, God was obviously doing some things in my life, but the point being is, like, hypocrisy is a major issue, and it does hinder a lot of people from hearing, let's say, giving the gospel a, a fair hear. Um, and that's where I think thinking about this in this way can be helpful because if we think, for example, that somehow in my spiritual walk with Christ, I'm actually better than or further away from or more deserving than or different than. Now, in some sense, yeah, we're different because we have Christ. But the thing that makes us different is the presence of God's spirit, not anything in of ourselves. So kind of moving forward. So there's. If we want to think of it this way, there's, let's say it this way. There's the irreligious way and the religious way of responding poorly. And so what we want to understand is that we want to respond in a way that is in accordance with the gospel versus religious or irreligious self-reliance. Um, so most of you have probably heard of Tim Keller, and this is actually, um, what we're going to look at here in a moment is, is drawn from him. But which one of these, as we're talking, would, would make more sense to you? The one on the top or the one on the bottom? One on the bottom. One on the bottom. So, in knowing that, how we respond is important. So here's, we're just going to read a few of these. But So for example, he says, a religious or a way of responding in self-reliance to this idea of God and what I'm supposed to do is I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But if we understand the gospel, it shifts. It's like I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Also, obedience on, on this side of, of let's say, self-reliance is ultimately I'm obeying in order to get things from God, whether it's worldly, let's say, favor, or ultimately so I can earn my way into heaven. But on this side, I obey God to get God. If we understand the gospel, we realize that the gift that God gives us in Christ is ultimately himself, himself. So though he is the giver of good things, we want the giver, not the good things that he gives and so I obey God to get him, to delight in and resemble him. Uh, another way this plays out, the path of self-reliance. When I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it's critical that I think of myself as a good person. I have to think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image have to be destroyed at all costs. But if we understand the gospel, which the, the starting point of the gospel is to realize I'm not a good person, and it's only by God's grace... Then when I'm criticized, you know, I'll struggle, but it's not critical for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. I can take criticism because that's how I became a Christian. I mean, think about it. What's the message of the gospel? Repent. Repent, turn from your sins, and trust in Christ. So the gospel starts with a criticism. You're a sinner in need of grace. Um... 
I like this one a lot. So if it we're operating on, let's say, self-reliance, our self-view tends to swing between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident. But then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel humble. feel humble but not confident. I feel like a failure. Now that one hits home, right? Because this is something I think all of us, to a certain extent, deal with. And all that reveals is that prideful self-reliance that's in all of us. Like when you think you've got things together, you like all you feel confident. You got you got a bounce in your step. But when you feel like you're you're falling short of your own, let's say goals, or you've you've had a rough week, you know you you woke up the cop like, let's say you woke you woke up late, didn't have time to make coffee, you got to work, and you had to deal with that one coworker that you can't stand, and you know they want to come and have a conversation for ten minutes, and you snap at them, and then later you're like, oh Jesus, I feel like I'm such a failure, right? Though, when we have those kinds of days, we're like, oh, I'm such a loser, and 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 we lose that sense of confidence because we feel like a failure. But if we're rooted in the gospel, my self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever or achiever in general. Right? In Christ, I am simultaneously sinful yet a saint. Simultaneously sinful yet accepted in Christ. I am so bad he had to die for me. And I am so loved. I am so loved he was glad to die for me. And this leads me to a deeper and deeper humility and confidence at the same time, neither swaggering nor sniveling. See the difference? Kind of tied to that, we'll, we'll hit this one last one, I think. Uh, no, go to this one. So the path of self-reliance. Since I look to my own pedigree or performance for acceptability, my heart manufactures idols. And we're going to talk more about idols in the coming weeks. There's going to be one, uh, one week um, where we're just going to focus on what those things are and how they affect us. Um, but an idol is anything, even a good thing, that takes the place of God in our life, takes the place of supreme, ultimacy, ultimacy or supremacy in terms of the thing we order our lives around. And so when we look to our own pedigree or performance for acceptability, we tend to manufacture idols. They might be our talents, our moral record, our personal discipline, or social status, it could be any of a number of things, but you absolutely have to have them so that they can serve as your main source of hope and meaning and happiness and security or significance. Whatever you say you believe about God, it's those things that you have and have acquired or maintained through your effort that give you those things, not God. But when we understand the gospel, you would say, I have many good things in my life, family, work, spiritual disciplines, etc., but none of these things are ultimate things to me. None of them are the things that absolutely have to be there or have to have. So there's a limit to how much anxiety and bitterness and despondency they can inflict on me when they are threatened and lost. And so again, we're going to unpack some of these ideas as we come in the, in the weeks to come. But the main thing I want us to see is that there's really two ways of responding. One is, um, and it goes either in a religious or irreligious way, it's, it's to, to choose the path of self-reliance. And the other is, is to humble ourselves and trust in and trust upon Christ as the source of our forgiveness, righteousness, identity, and well-being. So, how do we do that? We're gonna we're gonna close here over the next maybe 15 minutes with just kind of some practical things. How do we grow in our understanding and knowledge of the gospel? And so we would say one of the ways that we can do that is we want to live in full view of the cross. We want to live in full view full view of the cross. 
And so the starting point for the Christian life is when we, by God's grace, come to a, a, a knowledge of our sin, seeing Christ, and, and confess our sins in repentance and trust upon him. And then what's, what's happening in that moment is we're getting, a, we're getting a picture of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And so conversion is recognizing that whatever I am, I'm not sufficient to bridge that gap. I need, I need mercy. Make sense? So when we say we want to live in full view of this, what, what we're articulating is that we want to have a growing awareness of both our sinfulness and a growing awareness of the holiness of God. And in, in as we grow in that knowledge and understanding, one of the things we need to realize, it's not that God is getting more holy or that we're getting more sinful. Um, have you ever had this experience where, like, this is what happened to me. Remember, I knew I was, <laughs> I knew I was a sinner and I trusted Christ. And I was walking about six months and then there was something that happened in my life and I just like got hit with it. I was like, man, you are way worse than you thought you were. Like, you just have that realization, you know, where it's like, oh, you know. I'm a lot, I need a lot more work than even I realized. And it's not that I was getting more sinful. It's just that I was becoming aware of how sinful I actually am. Right. And so when we talk about living in full view of the cross, what we want to do is we don't want to, and we're going to talk about this as well in the coming weeks, we don't want to minimize, we don't want to try to minimize God's holiness or minimize our sinfulness. We want to embrace those things in their fullness because they're true. But, the way we embrace those is through an ever-increasing awareness of God's grace and love to us. Because if we start minimizing things, then we're going we're gonna to get squirrely. We're going to have certain sections of Scripture, for example, that we're going to take a Sharpie to. Like, I have the Charlie version, and there's these verses I'm not going to look at because they don't sit well with me. Right? Or we're going we're gonna to look at our lives, and we're going we're gonna to make excuses, and we're going to justify, and we're going to pretend, and we're going you know, we're gonna, to we're gonna do all these things because we don't want to acknowledge the fact that we're as sinful as, actually are, as we actually are. So, but what we want to do is we want to live in full view of the cross, full view of what Christ has accomplished for us, understanding the breadth and depth of the love of God for us in Christ, and so that we would become ever-increasingly more reliant upon His grace and rejoice in his goodness, and rejoice in his love, and rejoice in his mercy. Not in us. Because we didn't do anything. So we want to allow the cross to loom large. Um, one of the texts, for example, if you've read through the book of Isaiah, is this declaration from Isaiah. It says he, he has a vision, and he sees God in it, like enthroned in glory. And his response is this, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then he says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And that's Isaiah 6.5. And so he gets a clear picture of God, enthroned in glory, and his immediate response is what? Fear. Fear. Why? Well, because he sees the glory of God, and in light of the glory of God, he has a, has a clear picture for who he is, and he cries out, woe is me. You know, and if you read on, you see that God responds in mercy. It says that one of the angels comes with a coal and touches his lips, which is symbolizing that God, in an act of mercy, has purified it, which is, a, which is a gospel message in and of itself. It's not that we're pure, but God, through Christ, makes us pure. Um, so we have Isaiah, right? And so when we come to know Christ and become more conscious of these basic truths that God is holy, I am not, I am a sinner, 
And then in light of that, again, one of the negative ways to respond is through self-reliance. I'm going to try to fix myself. I'm going to try to be better, do better, try harder, etc. Or I'm going to turn and trust and rely in Christ. And it doesn't mean that we aren't changed. It doesn't mean that we don't, our lives don't grow or, or transform. But the, but the animating, let's say, values, the animating motivations are different. One is, I'm doing this. The other is, God's doing this in me and through me. And I'm submitting and surrendering myself to him, trusting in his grace, not in my discipline, my effort, etc. So we want to live in full view of the cross. Secondly, we want to preach the gospel to ourselves. We want to preach the gospel to ourselves. So here's the thing. A lot of times it's like, hey, if I were to ask you what's the gospel, we always typically hear that so that you can share it with others. But we miss that oftentimes it's important to know the gospel so you can share it with yourself. So you can remind yourself of the truth of God's grace to you in Christ. Because, for example, in doing this, and, in, in, and even reading, let's say, or listening to others, let's say, say, teach, proclaim the gospel, can become a source of encouragement. So this is reflected in a number of, of writings. So here's some quotes. This is from Spurgeon, right? He says, My hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am, or shall be, or feel, or know, but in what Christ is. I love that. In what Christ is, in what he has done, and in what he is doing, or is now doing, for me. Another one, uh, this is by Milton Vincent. He says, there is simply no other way to compete with the foreboding of my conscience, the condemning of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the gospel. You ever have one of those days one of those days where you're just you're beating yourself up? You're you're hammering yourself. Like you've got this this soundtrack kind of playing in your head and it's it's the it's the top ten failures of my life. And you just you're you're pounding yourself with those things. That's what he's talking about. It's like when the, when when your conscience when your own conscience is condemning you, which it does and it will Preach the gospel to yourself. Look to Christ. Go back and read the first one. This one? What part? Just right at the very beginning. <laughs> My hope lives, not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. Stop. If you look at where the conversion line begins, I'm not a Christian, and I reach to that point point where that point is a conversion line that I get to step over the other side yeah. in over the years of all of the people that I've talked with um, or ministered to or whatever you want to call the underlining thing is well nobody could really love me like that because uh, you don't you don't have a clue what I've done and my response to them always is you're absolutely right you don't have a clue what I've done and the word grace comes in that's the first time that they hear the word grace and that can turn a heart of what he just said if you continue on my trust is not that I am holy but that being unholy 
He is my righteousness. And that is the, that's the linchpin that, that, now, I'm not talking, I'm talking about people who actually come soaked in all that they've done and they ask the question, but how could a God that is holy yep. accept me? Yeah, about the, I don't know why this, this phrase is often, but I've heard this numerous times where it sticks in my head. You, you invite somebody to come to church and they're like, nah, you know, that place will catch on fire if I come. It's like, why? It's like, it's such a weird, like, thing for, but that seems to be a common response. It's like, I'll catch on fire if I come. It's like, ah. Because there's a measure of truth that entering into God's presence, like, yeah, we, we should. A light of flames. But because of Christ, no, we get grace. So we got Spurgeon. Milton Vincent, here's another one, by Jerry Bridges from his book, Transforming Grace. He says, you are loved and accepted by God through the merit of Jesus, and you are blessed by God through the merit of Jesus. Nothing you ever do will cause him to love you any more or any less. And this is something I think that we really struggle with, because we're so conditioned to think of affection as being predicated upon our performance. <laughs> And we're gonna we're gonna look at some here a little bit. It's not. It's 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 actually based upon the performance that Jesus did on our behalf. And so God not only loves us, but in Christ makes us worthy of His love. And so the foundational truth is that God will not ever love us any more than He already does, or any less. He loves us as He loves His Son Jesus, which is a perfect, abiding, fatherly, committed love. And then uh, two more. This is from J.I. Packer, his book, Knowing God. And this, this is one I love. He says, think against your feelings. Argue yourself out of the gloom they have spread. Unmask the unbelief they have nourished. Take yourself in hand. Talk to yourself. Make yourself look up from your problems to the God of the gospel. Let evangelical thinking correct emotional thinking. So what he's advocating for here is preaching the gospel. Right? You're feeling down. You're feeling low. You're feeling... He's saying, turn away, turn your eyes from yourself and look to the God who saves. Preach to yourself the truth of the gospel and God's faithfulness to you in Christ. And lastly, this is a famous one and by far my favorite from Martin Luther. He says, here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me. To wit, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. <laughs> right? And so if we turn that around on ourselves, we have to beat the gospel into our heads because we are prone to forgive it. Forget it. We, we, are, we are innately wired because of sin to rely on self and the flesh. And so our natural inclination is not to respond in repentance, trust, humility, and faith, but rather, I can do this. And, and, and to choose either the path of religious or irreligious uh, self-effort and rebellion. When God would say, don't do either of those things, but come to me trust in me, rely on me, cast yourself upon me. So we have to beat the gospel into our own heads. 
So what are some ways, practically speaking, that we can preach the gospel to ourselves, right? So one of them is meditate. Meditate on scripture. If there's a book that you enjoy reading that, that articulates truths like this really well, meditate on those sayings. Maybe there's a podcast you listen to or you have a favorite sermon where the gospel just kind of shines forth like a gem. Put that thing on and listen to it while you're, while you're doing some chores around the house. Meditate. Pray. Pray. Simply sit in the presence of the Lord. Confess your sins. Confess your fears. Confess, like, God, today, you know what, frankly, I don't trust you right now. I don't like you very much, and I'm angry because my life is really stinky. And, right, that's what, like, we, we try to edit our prayers. Don't. Just pray. Pray honestly before God. Lay those things out and allow God to minister to you through the Spirit. Sing. We can sing. Now, maybe you don't have a voice, but get in the car. Put on your song, right? Some song that, that, that really articulates the truths of God's grace to you that just hits home. And go for a drive and sing out loud where nobody can hear you, you know? Thank God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but singing, singing sometimes is a way that, that can enable us to, 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 to feel and connect with these truths on an emotional level. Because that's, that's the thing. Is we oftentimes, we, we think that there's like this separation between our head and our hearts. And, 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 and I'm not saying be driven by your emotions, but we can't ignore how we feel. We're, we're a uh, embodied creature. God made us an embodied creature. You know, what comes to mind, like, uh, it's not on this list, but sometimes the best thing you could do is go for a walk. Like I know Spurgeon, in one of his essays called the, the, A Minister's Fainting Fits, he says, sometimes you've been cooped up. He says, the best thing you could do to li li lift your spirits is get outside and go for a walk. You know, and, and to, to, to think on things other than the things that are troubling you. Um, so we can sing. Um, remember, remember how the gospels transformed you. Um, in, in certain circles, I've heard it referred to as this, is to think upon your baptism. It's to think upon God's faithfulness to you. Think upon the ways God has already shown himself to be faithful and true in your life. So meditate on those things to encourage yourself. And then lastly would be study. Study, like... We get a book on the, the, the doctrine of justification. And there's various ones. Some are small, some are big. Right? But immerse yourself to understand those things better for yourself. Like, deepen your own knowledge and understanding of the gospel so that when, you, when you're thinking upon these things, you can, you can have more confidence, not only that you understand it, but in understanding it, applying it to your life and allowing it to shape you. Um, third... So we want to, or second, we want to preach the gospel to ourselves. Third thing we want to do is we want to sharpen our understanding of the gospel. And this dovetails with the last point. We want to study the gospel. We want to grow in our understanding of it. And where this is important is that the Apostle Paul, in the, in the letter of Galatians, right, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he warns us that there are false gospels. There are things that are presented as the gospel which are not the gospel. And all of these things share in common a drift into a drift towards making the gospel, right, and I put that in quotations, more about us, who we are, what we do, etc., and, and moving it away from the central focus on Christ and what he's done on our behalf. And a contemporary example of this, because the one that Paul was addressing was, uh, it was called the Judaizers, and, and there, was a, there was a movement to get those who were Christians to kind of uh, go back to living under let's say, the Jewish dietary and ceremonial laws. Um, so I don't want to get too far into that, but one of the things that Paul in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament scriptures communicated is that those laws were fulfilled in Christ and they're now done away with. And so for the church, it was no longer necessary that they should abide by those laws. But there was a group coming around saying they had to and they had to be circumcised. And Paul's like, no, that's a fault. You're, 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 you're stepping away from the God. You're, you're, you're embracing a false gospel. 
So a contemporary one, um, more rooted in our, if you want to call it our humanistic therapeutic worldview, is it tends to view unqualified positive acceptance as the essential aspect of what it means to love somebody. So we have a therapeutic worldview that's contemporary, and that has shaped our understanding of love so that love is now understood and defined as an unqualified acceptance of someone. And this has infiltrated the way we talk about the gospel. And so we might say that God's love, God loves us unconditionally. God loves you unconditionally. Um, but a biblically faithful gospel is not an announcement of God's unconditional love for humanity. While it may seem shocking, God does not accept us as we are. That's not how God loves us. God doesn't love us as we are. Why? Sin. We are sin. We're, right. we, we are sinners. And in his essay, Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair, David Pallison addresses this error. And this is a contemporary error. And so when we say we want to study the gospel, I think this is one of the ones that's probably most helpful for us in our current time. And he writes this. He says, the gospel is better than unconditional love. The gospel says, God accepts you just as Christ is. God has contra-conditional love for you. Christ bears the curse you deserve. Christ is fully pleasing to the Father and gives you his own perfect goodness. Christ reigns in power, making you the Father's child, and coming close to you to begin to change what is unacceptable to God about you. God never accepts me as I am. He accepts me as I am in Jesus Christ. The center of gravity is different. The true gospel, listen to what he says here, does not allow God's love to be sucked into the vortex of the soul's lust for acceptability and worth in and of itself. Rather, it radically decenters people, what the Bible calls fear of the Lord and faith, to look outside themselves. To look outside themselves. And so this might be a complicated idea, and it runs counter to a lot of what we've heard about how God, like, because again, we'll say, God, you were made to be loved, and you have this hole, and if you would, and if you would just come to God, that need to be loved would be met in God. Now, while there's a certain truth in that, here's what you've just done. You've made your desire to feel loved the primary thing. And now God exists to make you feel loved. Now, if you've walked with God, have you ever had a season of life where you didn't feel like God loved you? See the problem? He's teaching you at that point, too. Correct. But you see how it's subtle. There's, there's a kernel of truth, but it's just enough that we get away from the true gospel. That it's not about us. Because, listen, he says, the true gospel doesn't allow God's love to be sucked into the vortex of the soul's lust for acceptability and worth in and of itself. It decenters us. God doesn't love us unconditionally. He loves us contraconditionally. And the conditions by which he loves us has nothing to do with us and everything to do with who? Jesus. Christ. So we look to him. This is why I say God doesn't just love us. He makes us worthy of his love in and through Christ. And so we have to study the gospel. We have to deepen our understanding of it so we can avoid errors. Not only for others, but for ourselves. Um, and and this, is, this is something that's... I remember the first time I heard, heard this idea that God loved me unconditionally. My first question, I was like, well, why did Jesus have to die then? And I remember asking the question, like, well, uh, and it's kind of like, if you're, if you're saying this, and God said he had to shed his blood so that I could be forgiven, that's not an unconditional thing. There's a condition there, a pretty heavy one, right? It's just that the conditions 
aren't mine. They're ones that Christ meant on my behalf. So we want to deepen our understanding of the gospel to avoid drifting into error. And then, lastly, we want to dwell upon the goodness of Christ. Uh, so to counteract uh, our tendency to shrink the gospel, we have to kind of nourish our minds on, on the truth of Scripture and who God has revealed himself to be and how God is at work in the world and in, among his people. And we want to know and see and, and, to, and to meditate on, to grasp and savor even the, the, the glory of God, the goodness of God, the majesty of God. And so we want to think on those things. Um, and growing in the gospel means that we're going to see more of God's holiness, more of our sin. And like that chart, right, we have the... the the, the way we want to respond to that is, is to grow an understanding of the, of, of the depth of God's love and grace for us. Not respond by pretending, performing, and running in, in, a, in a, a pattern of, let's say, religious or irreligious self-reliance. Uh, our hope is not in our own goodness or the vain expectation that God's going to grade on a curve. That's typically how we think of grace. Well, God's grading on a curve. Like, no, he's not grading on a curve. Right? Christ died for your sins and fulfilled God's perfect law on your behalf. He's not grading on a curve. You got an A, but you didn't earn it. It was given to you by Jesus. And so we want to we plant our flag there, but we oftentimes morph and twist grace into this, I'm getting graded on a curve. No, that's not what grace is. That's not what God's mercy is. It's been fulfilled on our behalf. And so we want to dwell upon the goodness of Christ and, and I think this is what Paul is kind of articulating in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And there's a reality that, maybe another way of saying this, is that we, we become what we worship. We become what we aspire after. We become what we value and treasure makes sense? You probably, you've probably seen this play out in your life at certain points. You probably see this playing out in other people's lives. But if we dwell upon the Lord, if we, like what Paul is saying here, if we're beholding his glory, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So, next week, we're going to shift um, our focus, and we're going to be talking about in specific, the, this idea of adoption um, and our new identity in Christ. We're going to talk about, um, so if you remember last week, I said we're going to come back to these things, this, this idea of uh, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. We're going to talk about those things, but within that, we're going, to, we're going to really focus on this idea of adoption. What does it mean that we're adopted and we're now sons and daughters of God and we've got been given a new identity in Christ? And so the next two, um, actually, I'm sorry, I believe it's the next two or three weeks, uh, we're going to be focusing in more, more specifically on how we grow individually in our walk with Christ. Um, the two things we're going to talk about um, are, are our tendency to pretend and perform. And then we're going we're gonna to kind of circle back around again and talk about the reality of idols and what those are and how they, how they affect us. And how they're a really helpful way of thinking about uh, how we can apply, let's say, some reason and thoughtful discipline in our lives in an effort to grow. Because God's not against effort. He's against us thinking that we can earn it. <laughs> Make sense? So the gospel is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. We don't earn God's grace. But grace is not opposed to effort. In fact, grace, we would say, enables and empowers an effort. This is why uh, the one, the one, it's like, I, I obey God, therefore I'm accepted. But no, it's, I'm accepted, therefore I get to obey. God enables you.